Here's what the word of the Lord is for this morning. Apostle Paul writing says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. I get the irony that I'm talking about myself this morning for the record. But this is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. I thought I'd get that one out of the way. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. It is good to be together worshiping the Lord. And again, greeting to those of you wherever you are uh, watching from as you tune in online this morning. Uh, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, name, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Doxa, and it's a joy this morning to bring you this word from the Lord. And we have been in 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy. We're kind of rounding third base and heading home, if you will. And sorry for the baseball uh, illustration right out of the gate. My son is playing baseball, and my daughter just started playing softball. So it is all up in our house right now, all the baseball things, and so we're enjoying that for the spring, but we are making good progress, I guess you could say, going through 1 Timothy now in chapter 5, and, and the Apostle Paul is writing to his younger, uh, really spiritual son and protege in the ministry, Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor in the city of Ephesus, where we get the book of Ephesians, and we get Paul with these two uh, Holy Spirit-inspired writings, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, wrote to his dear friend and son in the faith, and he writes on everything from, from church order to church leadership, addressing various theological situations, false teachings and teachers, all of that in this letter. It's chock full of practical and timely teaching. And that shouldn't surprise us because it is the living and active Word of God. Like you understand, this isn't just relevant for our church. This is authoritative over our church. And therefore, it sets the direction of our church because we sit under the Word of God. Is the Word of God relevant? Yes, it is. Not because someone makes it relevant to you. Even if we can help you understand it, its relevance is in the words itself because it is the authoritative Word of God upon which faithful churches preach and lead their people. To the degree that any church is not following God's word, repentance and reformation is needed in that church. And so we want to be a church submitting gladly to the word of God under the authority of Jesus. Now, Paul has addressed many things already. He's addressed the, the, the relevance of God's law in the Christian life and the glory of the gospel to save sinners in chapter 1. We see a description and teaching on the proper uh, respective roles for men and women in uh, the church. We see qualifications laid out for different leadership positions in the church. We see a portrait of what a faithful, effective pastor looks like. We've seen a brief teaching on what we could call multi-generational relationships in the church at the beginning of chapter 5. And then for the last two weeks, we've been going over a lengthy teaching on, uh, from Paul 
regarding honoring widows who are truly widows as he lays out qualifications for those who would receive support, particularly material or financial support in that position of hardship uh, in the church. And now Paul's going to turn a corner, as it were, and he's going to focus on elders for a time. And he's going to give two sets of instructions. The first we're covering today, which is how a church should view paying pastors slash elders. And then secondly, how a church should address accusations and even sins of their elders, of their leaders. And so today I have the honor of informing you why you pay your pastors. The title this morning is Instructions on Churches Paying Pastors. Just what I know you woke up just really eager to hear about this morning from a pastor nonetheless. But the truth is, as you know if you're here already, this is just the next verses. It's why we're preaching it today. And the beauty of that, of being a church that preaches expositional sermons or expository sermons is verse by verse through the whole book. So we don't avoid any parts of it. We go into all the parts and all the things. And what you can have the assurance of is that I have not cooked up this sermon out of the blue. I haven't just decided, you know, I want to be a little passive aggressive this morning. I would like to talk about how important it is to be generous to your pastors. So you know I didn't do that. And you can know that this isn't coming because the church is behind on the budget. And so Chris has got to be that guy, sacrificial lamb, get up there and urge some more strong giving, right? Like not the deal. Thankfully, we're ahead, praise God, at this time in our church's budget. And God is good and faithful. And that's, yes, it's the generosity of God and his people. And you also can just, there's no second offering this morning, okay? We haven't passed the place since that one thing started called COVID, and we decided to kill that permanently, by the way. No more plate passing. You all are awesome at just adjusting, and so that's how it goes. No more second offering this morning. So let's get into it, shall we? Big idea this morning. In paying pastors, the church should... Dot, dot, dot. In paying pastors, the church should. And I do want to make clear, actually, I forgot to say this already, that we're going to use pastor and elder synonymously. I might slip it in together. I might use it in different spots. But in the New Testament, you see it as a synonym, pastor, overseer, elder. And if you want a more detailed explanation, you can go back to the sermon from 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Pastor Scott addressed that with the qualifications of elders as well. So I'm just going to state that up front. And you can go chase that down if you weren't here for it. Okay, three big ideas out of the text. In paying pastors, the church should, number one, admire the role done well. Admire the role done well. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. But the first part here, those who rule is where we need to start. Because... Some translations, such as the New International Version or the NIV, read, the elders who direct the affairs of the church. Some of you likely have that in there. That's what you would call an interpretation, not so much a translation of that Greek word. 
It's actually an appropriate sense of the word, but make no mistake, it's a very common word, rightly translated, rule. And so we just need to lay out from the beginning, we're talking about a position in the church, the highest human ranking position in the church that has true authority. A true spiritual authority to oversee and to have charge of the care of souls in a local church. And the sense of the word includes directing the affairs of the church. But again, that that might miss the, the, the force of what the word should be, which is that it's a ruling position. Now, this is a derived authority, to be clear. It is a derived authority under the lordship and authority of the true and chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, right? So it's derived, it's legitimate, it's true, but it's not inherent in the person himself. It's not just because of his, you know, pedigree regarding family or necessarily even education, So it's a legit, real authority derived under Jesus, and it's why you get verses like Hebrews 13, 17, which say, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we're talking about a position in the church. um, Paul has already brought it up that men are to be elders in the church who have qualifications from chapter 3. And by the way, those qualifications are broadly what all of us should be aiming at. So it's not that everybody that has the qualifications always becomes an elder. But that, that that is the bar for even consideration is that kind of life and faith and defense and knowledge of the word of God from chapter 3. But the elders, as they submit to Christ, have the church submitting to them as the church is also likewise submitting to Christ, going the direction under the caring, shepherding leadership and rule of godly men. Now, secondly, we see this, the elders who rule well, Paul says. Paul knew that not every elder was ruling well in Ephesus at the time. We can, we can surmise some of the context that maybe there were accusations and even sin issues among those who held the position of elder because Paul is going to go on to address that in our subsequent verses that we're not getting to today. Paul's not, though, when he says let the elders who rule well, he's not necessarily creating a hierarchy, right? Like we don't have a leaderboard in the back of like best elder of the month, right? Like it's not like you did the bestest this one. Like you two did well, but you did the wellest. You did the best. Now we don't, we're not talking hierarchy. There's not permission for you to like, how do I rank these? We have four men on the elder board, for example. Let me rank them. And my pastors, here's, you know, how I would rank them. That's not what he's talking about, but he's acknowledging there's a quality to serving as an elder that some do uh, show themselves demonstrably effective and faithful. They rule well under the Lord Jesus in that role. So let them that rule well, he says, be considered worthy of double honor. The church, this is a command, let the church 
consider the people in the church, consider them worthy. That is a command of the church to consider them in your minds worthy of what he calls double honor. We're esteeming this role in our heart as a church. We're thankful to God that these are our, uh, again, it's a derived spiritual authority given by Jesus, not inherent within them, but they've been risen up to this position, called into it, and received the call to serve the church in this leadership capacity. Let them be esteemed as being worthy of double honor. Now, double honor is a phrase that can be confusing, and if we're not careful, we could make too much of what that necessarily means. And some pastors, no doubt, have taken advantage of that concept, but it still is an important one. So we can put it this way. It's a, it's a way of referring to two kinds of honor. One honor would be that we're thankful for those serving and leading in this position. And the second kind of honor would be talking about compensation, talking about pay and support financially for their ruling and for their ruling well. So single honor, if you will, is admiration for the work done well, and double honor would be adding to that financial compensation in terms of payment. So double is not necessarily twice as much money, okay? It's also not just saying thank you twice. Like, thank you, thank you. You have not just honored a pastor elder doubly by doing it twice, right? So it means two things, and it's an additional form of honor. And, and we're going we're gonna to know that it's financial in the next verse. We also know that it's financial in the context of uh, honor the widows. That's what verse 3 says, honor the widows. And that clearly has to do with material support to the widows who are truly widows that are qualified as Paul described. It's clearly material support in view here. So the sense is a generous disposition from the church body, from the church that is under this good leadership to care for, particularly we're going to see those that labor in preaching and teaching. So let me address a, a practical application right now and, and what I think is woven maybe into the background of this text, but helpful for you just to understand the way things are here and the way things run in, in places in a modern sense, right? So when it comes to elders and pastors, elder slash pastor, it's, it's the highest ranking office, humanly speaking, of the church. And, and you've got a variety of um, forms. So there are lay elders. When we say lay elders, they have their income or their job or career from outside the church, these are qualified under the qualifications of chapter 3 already gone through. And they're um, built up, made up for this work, called into it. And they have their income from outside the church. Then there are vocational elders slash pastors. Vocational being their full-time work is in the church. They uh, likely were, were, were called perhaps from a young age, but not always. Maybe they sought formal training or maybe they were uh, developed. Uh, even I think of the, the interns that we have, it's not all that they're see receiving uh, you know, letters after their last name after this, right? So it could be formal education or it could be otherwise, but they are brought up into a full-time position in the church. Others are bivocational. 
they, they have a form of income outside the church and a form of income in the church from their leadership, their responsibilities. The Apostle Paul operated like that. From what we know, he was a, a tent maker by trade, and, and so he had an effective form of income as he traveled around. And then others, it could be a career transition where you start in a position where your income, you have, a, you have a career, a job outside, and you serve effectively, and there is a need that presents itself, and either you've been in a career for a long time, or, or you could even be more or less in the middle of it, and sense that calling to come and fill a need full-time vocationally in the church. And I think of, for example, uh, Tony Pistone, who joined us last May on staff, but he's been, he'd been an elder for a few years already. After a long career in one field, has been working full-time here. So you have a variety of forms of what this takes. And the point is not, the point is not that every elder pastor must require income from the church, but that the church rather should esteem the position and should gladly be taking care of the needs of the elders who are ruling well. And we're going to see particularly those laboring in preaching and teaching. All of those are valid forms of how they serve as elder pastor, and we have a variety of those even here. So the first thing we're going to see, if the church is going to uh, be paying their pastors properly in the text, we're going to see admiring the role done well. And then secondly, we're going to see appreciate the highest form of their work. Appreciate the highest form of their work. This is the second part of verse 17, where he says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul is isolating now a particular uh, form of the work, a particular kind of the work, which he says is preaching and teaching. Once again, though, he's not creating a division of duty per se, strictly speaking. Like there are those that only rule and those that only preach and teach. That's not what he's doing. Every elder needs to be a, a, a capable teacher in certain environments. They don't all need to have a gifting and calling to do the broader form preaching in front of the entire uh, you know, assembly like this service is. But they need to be capable in their own right because of a mature understanding of the word to, to talk about it, to teach it to uh, others. But not all are called into the unique labor that is the ongoing ministry work of the the preaching and teaching. So it's not so much that the preachers and teachers, they, they don't do the shepherding, they don't do the church discipline, they don't do those other things of important elder work. No, they do, but they're set aside to work particularly in a form of labor known as what Paul calls preaching and teaching. You might say this is a distinction of form and maybe priority, but not exclusive in terms of, again, I do this, but I don't do this as an elder. Okay, so let's, let's break it down. Firstly, Paul says that this particular, what he's talking about, this preaching and teaching, is, is what does he say? He says it's labor. Labor or work. This Greek word is used in many places, and it means work unto weariness. It is work that is Honest, long work that should tire one out at the end of the day. 2 Timothy 2.6, Paul says, The hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. John 4.6, Jesus was wearied from his journey. That same word there. 
1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul claims, I worked harder than any of them, speaking of the other apostles, though not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I worked harder. It's an excelling work. It's, a, again, a wearisome labor. This is the word. It is good, honest day's work that Paul is getting at. Now, Paul's not so much focused on the gifting of the person, though that's relevant and comes up in many places. The gifting is not the priority here as much as the labor and the work that it takes in preaching and teaching. And so I just want to take a moment, and you'll hear me do this a few times today because it's only a couple verses, but don't you worry, I'm going the distance today. I want to make sure you kind of get, get brought in on a few particular levels as a pastor, as one intimately familiar with this work here at, your, at this church. And if it's not your church, maybe you're considering that. I hope this could even be helpful to know something of, of our culture and of the pastors here. So let me talk to you about the workers that you have at DOXA. First of all, regarding all of our staff, of which we have more than 20 part and full-time staff workers in the church, we, it is a tremendous honor to co-labor with each and every one of them. Now, this sermon is not really about just the general ministry work here at the church, but I would be remiss if I at least did not make sure to let you know how much... Um, how much they do, how much they mean to the church and the quality of character, the excellence of the work that is represented in every single one uh, of our paid staff at the church. But this being particularly about the office of elder pastor, regarding our eight vocational pastors, just want you to know I could not be more grateful to God to work with each and every one of them. You have pastors with an exceptional work ethic at this church. These are men that I see nearly every day. They are absolutely gifted in unique ways by the Lord, but preeminently you have got hard-working pastors. And our two lay elders... Two that we have right now, Darren and Carrie, are phenomenally committed and, and wise in ways that it is hard to actually put words to, but when I've been in so many meetings with them, the value that they bring to the table as elders and pastors of our church is immense. And the level of work and the contribution that they make um, cannot be measured just in the time that they're even here. It's the kind of men they are. I, I know enough to know that I don't know all that they put into their labor for the Lord, even as lay, meaning unpaid elders, pastors at our church, deserving of great honor and so, so grateful for them. And let me say a word about our lead pastor, Scott, in particular. His work ethic has really set the tone for all of us who are blessed to be pastors here. And there are many things that I admire about Scott Hollingshead, not least of which is his work ethic. You guys see the fruit of that work ethic. You know that, right? You see that in the 40 to 42 times per year that he is bringing you the word. I want you to know that he is a man dogmatically committed to his first and highest calling to labor in preaching and teaching. Having 
worked alongside him for seven and a half plus years now, I know pretty well, though not the full extent, that there are dozens of things vying for his time on any given week. There's people, there's problems, sometimes the people are the problems. There's a lot of needs, there's a lot of decisions to be made, there are leadership meetings to be in, there's the tyranny of the urgent that always feels like it's just bearing down on you. But you need to understand that he does not allow the important yet secondary things that are also in his role of leadership to crowd out the time that he commits to the labor that it is to preach and teach. And that is an awesome participation that I have with him in this work, but it is a great privilege that, that you have to know and be assured from someone who knows better than most what he does and what it takes for what he does on Sunday mornings. So it's worth our highest esteem, and I'm so thankful for that. He's not here to defend himself, so I could say worse things, but I won't because I really don't have them to say because I love him dearly. But I want you to know that all of our pastors and about Scott as our lead pastor. Now, let's unpack this preaching and teaching phrase. A lot is said in these two words. Preaching here is not so much about the act of preaching itself. There are words that are about the act of preaching, the heralding, the proclaiming of the word of God. 2 Timothy 4.2 where Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. That's a verb being proclaim, herald the word of God. But this is not actually that as much as it's from the word where we would get logos from or logos, depending on where you want to put the emphasis. Okay, logos. <laughs> I'm just in rare form apparently this morning. Two verses, but again, going to go the distance for you all today, okay? So this is a rich philosophical and religious word well known in the Greek world and, and, used in, and used often in the scriptures. But here's what you need to understand, that Paul is driving at this pastoral responsibility to be a word-centered man in what you communicate, not to be pontificating your current mood, not to be believing that the power and the glory is in your personality or it's in your charisma or it's in anything else that resides in you, but the power resides in the Logos. It's in the Word itself. The very Word of God is where the power resides to change lives and to transform people, cultures, marriage, churches. It is the word of God. And what is this word that we preach? It is the word of and about Jesus Christ. It is then the full counsel of God's revelation to us. So it is a concrete word. It is a clear word. It is not a vague word with just vapid words and vocabulary. It's again not just the preacher coming up to give his self-esteem talk for the church. But it's a concrete message centering on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it is the life-giving word about the good news of Jesus who is, by the way, the very word of God. John 1 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, and that Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's the Word preeminently about Jesus, the eternal God, second member of the Trinity, who took on, added to His divinity, human form and flesh, being born through a virgin, being born into the world in true history who lived a perfect life, a sinless life under the law of God, his heavenly Father, that none of us could or would live. And having lived a perfect and sinless life, he, willingly being sent by the Father, but in love for the world, he gave his own life on the cross as a sin substitute, bearing upon his own body, the condemnation that we deserve for our sin. For we, though made in the image of God, have all gone astray. Like sheep going our own way. We have mocked the eternal God. We have worshipped other things, exchanging the glory of God for the glory of created things. In our hearts and with our mouths and with our whole lives, we have not honored and loved God as we were created to do. Yet Jesus died as our sin substitute so that any and all who will place faith in him, forsaking all others, trusting in his name, could know the forgiveness of their sins and not only the forgiveness and cleansing through his blood, but the life-transforming power of his resurrection because on the third day he rose again. And so we have a new and eternal life through Jesus Christ having been cleansed from our former sins, having now been filled with the Holy Spirit. For Jesus, after rising, ascended back to heaven from where he came and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father on the throne in heaven, from where he rules and reigns today over all created things, over all kings. Did you know Revelation 1 calls Jesus the ruler of kings? He is the one they are all responsible to just like we are and accountable to for the way they live their life as we are to him. He is reigning now and he is returning one day to judge perfectly in absolute righteousness. You who think that people who have wronged you are getting away with their sins, you're fooling yourself. There is no injustice in the end for God will judge justly in the end. And all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, turning from self, sin, and any other form of religion, only trusting in him, are given eternal life, who will be with him. They will be their God. He, they will be his people. He will be their God forever. This is the word of God that we preach. This is the center of our message. Do we talk about more than that? We do. But this is the center of the message, the very word of God. And so pastors faithful in their role must be those who herald that word of God in their preaching. And secondly this, he says, teaching. Preaching, which is the word, and teaching, which is doctrine. So you could say they labor in word and doctrine. That would be an appropriate way to say this as well. Paul here is highlighting the need for what we might call a robust biblical worldview to be explained and defended. This means that pastors and elders are those who have to hold the line on sound doctrine, which must inherently include rebutting and rebuking false doctrine. 
Paul in this letter has already been writing about false teachers and false teaching. He's about to bring it up again in chapter 6. Faithful pastors are those that as they preach the word, as they teach sound doctrine, they are addressing and correcting erroneous beliefs and teachings that make their way into the church, oftentimes actually arising from within the church. This is the preeminent concern of Jesus and the apostles, not just what's wacky out there in the world that comes in, because that does happen, but but. Even greater than that is the false teaching that happens through just smooth speech and a mixture of they can put some Bible verses on it, but they're ultimately going to lead astray. Again, it's going to be just vapid and vain or it's going to be twisted and mangled. And so good, faithful pastors are going to use the very living and active Word of God, which is Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And because of that fact, that means it cuts, right? The Word of God divides. It divides between truth and falsehood. It divides between right and wrong. It divides between good and bad doctrine. It's inherent in what the Word is. And for the record, letting the Word of God do its work to cut and to divide is not the same thing as being divisive. I just get so sick of pastors that I see online in videos and or hearing about it from some of you just castigating their people that have legitimate biblical questions because they can read too. They study too. And they've got concerns, pastor. And they lay the charge of divisiveness by the very nature of having questions. That is not what is is divisive. Divisiveness is an issue in attitude and in character and conduct, but not when you have honest questions about the Bible. Help me, pastor. Pastors will burden their people. Many times I'm convinced it's because these pastors like to play in what I'm going to call their theological mushy middle sandbox. The spoiler of that is that the Bible knows no such thing as their theological mushy middle that they try to live in. And so their people get tired of that mushy middle because it's not what they see in the scriptures. That's not to say that everything is easily understood in the scriptures. That doesn't mean that we don't have some interesting and even important differences in the way we understand things. But we want to stand upon the word, teaching sound doctrine, working hard together as pastors and as the church to be faithful under the word with a biblical worldview. And that means the word of God, it does cut, it divides truth from falsehood. Pastors must be ready to do that. So all pastors and teachers, pastors and elders I should say, need to have an aptitude for teaching. That doesn't mean they all do it like this, but they need to do it on a personal level, in a small group level. They could do it in class instruction. And I'm thankful to stand behind or beside, beside I suppose I should say, each and every one of our eight vocational and two lay elders that this is what they do well. So we're admiring the work. 
We are appreciating the highest form of the work in its preaching and teaching function. And we are thirdly going to adhere to biblical rationale. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Ultimately, the answer is, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible says it, and I'm going to take the Bible's word on it. You're like, this could have been so much shorter, Chris. I get it. I get it. There's a lot to say in, these te- in this text, though. Let's, let's start here in verse 18. Um, okay, the Scripture says. Did you know that that's actually really important? That the Scriptures say... Because the Word of God is living and active. The Scriptures speak. It is God speaking His Word. And it was on my heart as I was studying this week just not to move past that phrase too quickly. To know the Scriptures speak. Now, literally, you would say the writings say. But what Paul's getting at is the authoritative, holy writings that are perfectly inspired and inerrant as the very word of God. He's going to quote from Deuteronomy. He's going to use the words of Jesus. And then even Peter, in 2 Peter 3, is going to reference Paul's writings. Actually, he says they can be difficult to understand. It's an interesting verse. But he says, he mentions they are Scripture. They are on par with the holy writings, that they were self-aware in some measure that the, as apostles, they were leveraging and writing by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. The Scriptures speak. This is a battleground area in churches. Not so much here, praise the Lord. But it's a battleground area in American Christian culture. It's one of the oldest tactics of the devil. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. Asking Eve, did God really say? Did God really say? twist just a bit. Jesus and Satan in the garden, I'm sorry, in the desert during his temptation, even Satan using scripture against Jesus. He's the father of lies. He can even use a true word of scripture as part of his temptation and lies. And so that the scriptures say and that they are authoritative cannot be assumed This is the world that we are in, unfortunately. We can't just move past that, though it needs to be enough for us. And again, I praise God, that is the case here. Now, Paul says two things. He says, the scriptures say, and then he goes to Deuteronomy 25, and he says, you shall not muzzle an ox, uh, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, Now, Paul is hearkening back to the law of God, where God commanded Israel to treat their work animals um, fairly. 
The pagan nations were known to abuse their work animals. They would put a, a, a muzzle in their mouth so that as they worked to tread out the grain, which was, generally speaking, it was a post in the ground, a rope attached to that. The, the ox would go around and around as on the floor would be the corn stalks, and they would, with their massive weight, they would be treading out the grain for all the food reasons they used it for. But the pagan nations would abuse their animals. And God said, don't do that. Let, let the animal participate or partake in the work he's doing. So as he's working, he's able to eat and you don't abuse him. And Paul uses this as an example about pastors. Thank you for the compliment, Paul. I'm an ox, it turns out. But the truth is that this is very appropriate because ministry work is not glamorous. Despite my looks, I'm not a celebrity. Right? It's hard work. There are so many ways pastors are misunderstood. And I can bear some of that, my responsibility in that part, okay? I can admit that. But there are ways of being misunderstood and accused of so many things. There is tremendous weight to the role of pastor elder. We are, ironically, ourselves also sheep and disciples, while also being shepherds to care for the flock of God. It is a hard labor. I love this metaphor. It's right. It is not glamorous to be an ox. It's not glamorous to be a pastor. And his point is that you need to church, you need to support your pastors, particularly those in preaching and teaching, with proper compensation. Understand, friends, that this role that I'm blessed to be in is not because of, again, my inherent anything, inherent intellect or family heritage or any such thing. You and I are not different in category as Christians. You have an a responsibility and an ability, if you are a believer, with the Holy Spirit of God to study the Word, to know the Word, to love the Word, to defend the Word, to even share and teach and give the Word of God to others. We aren't separate in category as Christian, but there are those who are set apart for a certain kind of work. That's all that it is, set apart for a certain kind of work. Some of you, even you, you uh, interns who, who were here and others of you would aspire to something like that or to full-time Christian ministry work, that's a wonderful aspiration. Understand that if you don't have an ironclad conviction that it's your calling, you do not want it. The nine to five, and it's not just a nine to five, but the nine to five, to use that phrase of a pastor's life, is not glamorous. It's good, honest, hard work. And then Paul quotes the words of Jesus. The laborer deserves his wages. This was likely a, a circulated saying of Jesus. Paul uses it elsewhere. It also comes out of Leviticus that Jesus used the law of God in his own teaching. That's a simple statement of you pay for proper work. Now, three concluding remarks and then I'll be done want you to know my heart as a pastor in three concluding statements, some of which I've already covered, but I think it's worth on a high level coming back to. 
Firstly, this ministry work is hard work, particularly that of preaching and teaching. Contrary to the popular jokes, your pastors are not golfing multiple times a week. I'm probably the pastor who enjoys golf the most, and I might get out for nine holes a month. If you want to change that, we can talk. (laughs) However, some of you have lovingly offered to take me out to golf on a day of the week, and I'm like, "Mm, gotta say no. Turns out I'm working at one o'clock on Tuesday. So we put in hours, y'all. Good, honest labor as your pastors. We love the work we do, but it is work. Secondly, appreciating your pastors and elders is a big deal. The rate of discouragement and depression among pastors would likely shock you if you saw some of the recent studies that are being done, particularly in these last couple of years. Pastors, like I've said, bear a unique kind of spiritual weight in their role. doesn't make us better than. It, it is a different reality, though. So, so the words of thanks, the occasional gifts of thanks that come are tremendously valuable. I'll tell you why. They, they, they are used by God to buoy the heart of your pastors. It's the best way I can think of to say it. They serve a purpose to uplift us in the heavy work that it is. To know that we're serving and leading in a church that that loves them. And and, and appreciates the work. You, You don't see a lot of it. You see fruit of the labor that goes on in the middle of the week. You don't see a lot of it. But when you thank a pastor... In whatever form it is, it is particularly valuable. I just want you to know that. And this is not a a pity party as if that's not already happening. It is. I'm looking out in the room as so many of you have taken particular interest in me. And I know different pastors could think of different people that particularly are praying for them, particularly generous to them and thankful to them. Just know it is far more than the word of thanks itself. It is very meaningful. I believe it's part of of God's plan to care for the souls of those who are caring for the souls of the church and that you have a participation in that. So I'm grateful to say this is a place that does that. And thirdly this, Doxa has always excelled in paying pastors well. I do want you to know that because for the most part you probably wouldn't know that for sure. From the beginning, the motto has been, work hard, pay hard. Work hard, pay hard, pay well. We pay attention to fair market value. There are places we can research that according to the size of the church we have, the budget that we have, the general location that we're in. We do all that stuff. The faithfulness and excellence of the work, we get annual reviews like the rest of the staff. But understand that the heart of our elder board has always been how can we generously take care of those who are laboring, all of them, and particularly those laboring as as our pastors. And so that's a word of thanks to our four elders, Scott and Tony and Darren and Carrie, from the bottom of my heart and the way that you care for us as pastors. But it's secondarily also a thanks to you because of the generous ongoing support 
that you give financial contribution to in this church, part of what it does is take care of the pastors. It does a lot more than that. But that's part of what it does, and that's, that's right. And that is a culture that we have here, and it is a great honor to be here as a pastor. I have told more people than I could count, it is one of the greatest honors of my life to be a pastor at this church. I want you to understand that. We love you and we're so grateful to God. It is not the pay that makes it worth it. That is the least of the reasons why it's worth it. It is the lives transformed. It is the gospel going out. It is the discipleship happening. It is the empowering and the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry that fires us up and that brings us joy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your grace upon my life to be a pastor in this church. Thank you for the joy that it is to be laboring in this work. Thank you for the church that you have assembled here and are growing here at Doxa. Thank you for your faithfulness to it. You are Lord over it, providing for it, saving people in the church through the ministry that goes on as we scatter from here. We don't just leave uh, and go on with our day. We leave as disciples. We leave as those filled up to the brim with the word of God and our worship lives so that we would represent you well in the world and that we would bring people in to hear the gospel, to see the fellowship of the saints and the love that you have given us for one another. So God, be glorified. Thank you for the way you order the church, for the care of souls it provides. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.